leading like Jesus. You know, there's a lot of models out there that we could take as leaders. been a lot of great leaders in the world in many, many different areas of life. For example, Abraham Lincoln uh, served our country as a 16th president of the United States. There's books written about uh, his leadership. Uh, General George Patton, uh, who served in World War II, and of course, I think this is more George C. Scott, but you know, in the movie, but nevertheless, uh, it represents him, great general. Billy Graham, I mean, my hero, and uh, been a leader in the Christian church for many, many years. Now, here's a dad with his kids. We don't know who this is, but he's a leader, isn't he? He's a leader, an unknown leader, leading his family. And then, of course, our, one of our fearless leaders, Don Jacobs. There you go. And uh, Don has served here, as you just met him, if you haven't met him before. And then, of course, uh, there's Braveheart, the movie Braveheart, Mel Gibson. You know, put, uh, Don right after, put Mel Gibson right after Don there. And Mel Gibson uh, was in the movie um, Braveheart about William Wallace, one of the great leaders of Scotland in years past. And then there's some bad leaders as well. Uh, for example, this one, Hitler. He said, why would you put Hitler up on the board. Well, he led a lot of people, but he led people down the wrong path. And so just because you're a leader doesn't mean he's going to go the right direction. In fact, everybody leads at some point or another, right? Like this next guy, if we can just keep the, the pictures kind of going a little bit. Uh, now, <clears throat> Homer Simpson, you can say, well, man, he wasn't a very, you know, I've only seen this cartoon maybe once in my life, but I watch the commercials when they come on there. They're kind of funny. And uh, Homer is just a doofus, so not everybody's a leader, okay, but most people are. Here's a leader, Margaret Thatcher, served in England and was a great leader. Steve Jobs was a leader in, uh, in innovation in, uh, in the tech industry. And here's a lady in the classroom. You can say, well, what kind of leader is she? Well, I don't know, but I know that she's leading. She's leading children and investing in their future. And so most of us would have to say here, at some point or another, you're leading something. Now, you may be leading your family, you may be leading in your business, you may be leading in your church, but you, you have leadership responsibilities. And as it's been said so many times before, everything rises and falls on leadership. And so it's important of the model that you choose for leadership and how you lead, because there's so many models. There's so many books, there's a plethora of books written on this in the last 20, 25 years. And so where do we take our lead? Well, I want to take my lead, and I pray that you want to take your lead from Jesus himself. And we see this mapped out a little bit in the book of Philippians. In the book of Philippians, we find the apostle Paul, who was saved on the, that road to Damascus and struck blind, and now he's the lead, one of the leaders of the apostles. He wrote many books in the New Testament on the in, inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And now he comes to the point of writing this letter to a church that where he was at one time, and it's the church at Philippi. And really there's no rebuke in this whole book. It's just a book about joy, and it's a book about joyful service. But there's one tiny part of the book that is a concern, and he writes about a concern of his, and that is two ladies in the church were sort of divisive, and they were coming together in Philippians 2, and they were kind of fighting a little bit, and people were beginning to choose sides. And so Jesus, or rather Paul, begins to say, you ought to walk humbly before the Lord. Here's how uh, uh, the church at Philippi, the pastor at Philippi, ought to lead. Here's how the deacons ought to lead in this situation. 
And then he begins to spell out an example that Jesus himself set. So I want us to look at three things. Number one, we need a, heart, a, a, a passionate heart, a heart that is passionate. We need a mind that is humble, and we need hands that are busy. That's his example. Let's look with me. Uh, we'll look with me together in verse uh, 5 of chapter 2. It says, having this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, what I'm doing here in verse 5, I'm taking the middle verse, and this, this really modifies everything that's went, gone on before it, and the example about Jesus is after that. And so this is the central verse. He says the key to being a, a great leader and being leading like Jesus Christ in whatever capacity that you're leading in is having the right outlook or attitude and the right disposition about life as well. Now, we can look, and the Bible talks about this all the time. In fact, the Beatitudes of Matthew chapter 5 that Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount are about our attitudes. I, was, uh, I remember years ago coming here as your pastor, and we had a deacon's meeting, and I, uh, we, we were just discussing things. I said, let me do this. I said, let me ask you to think about the person that you most admire in life. And so they thought about that. I said, don't tell me who it is, but just think about then why you admire them. Why do you really admire that person that you most admire? And they thought about that. I said, now let's write down those characteristics. Not who, but why do you admire them? And we begin to write on the board over and over and over again, I think 35 or so different things. And I said, now, here's the thing. I want to put an S beside every, every single one of these that are a skill. In other words, you admire somebody because of their skill. And then I want to put an A beside every single one that's an attitude. Well, we went through one by one, and we looked back at it, and about out of the 35, two were skills. Two could be an attitude, could be a skill. 31 of them were attitudes. And I said, the lesson here, guys, is this. You can become like the person that you most admire because we all choose our attitude. And so Jesus is saying this attitude, what attitude was he talking about? He said, well, first of all, I want you to have an attitude of really passion for one another. Passion, of course, for God, but passion for one another. How does this play out? Look in verse 3. He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Now, when we look at this, these verses, we understand that Jesus said something about this, this whole thing. He said, look, you know, I'm going I'm to wrap up the whole law in two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your, second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. Say that with me. Love your neighbor as yourself. Exactly. And so passion, we're talking about having passion in your life. It's based really on a couple of things. And really, if I were going to define it, I would say this. Passion is an intense emotion, compelling action. It's a strong devotion to some object, activity, or person. Really what it is, convictional love. It's love that has enough convictions that it causes you to do something. That's passion. It causes you to be wrapped up in, in doing something so much, you've, you just feel like you've got to do something about it. So it's wrapped up in love. The Bible says this, God demonstrated his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus was showing himself 
and telling us that he loved us by dying on the cross. Now look back with me just for a moment in uh, verse 3. It says, uh, with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Then he begins to give the example of Jesus in verse 6, who although he existed in the form of God. Now keep in mind, he was God in the flesh. John 1, 1 and 14. Jesus came, he was God in the flesh, and here's what it says about it. He did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped. That is to exploit. That's what the word means. He didn't exploit it. He didn't say, well, you know, now that, you know, I'm the pastor, this is what we're going to do. He didn't say, well, now that I own this business, you're going to do what I want you to do. Now I'm going to change things the way that, that it benefits me in in life or my classroom or my family. You know, I'm, I'm going to center my whole family around me because I can. No, he didn't grasp anything. He surrendered all that. He, the Bible says in verse 7, but emptied himself. Now, this word empty just simply means, it could mean a lot of different things, and people have written books on what this actual word actually implies. But what it means is, is basically he surrendered his privileges, his privileges of being the son of God, God in the flesh. And in order to do what? In order, in verse 8, it says, even death on the cross. He humbled himself, even death on a cross. He put us first. By what? By dying on the cross for our sins. Because passion not only talks about love, and you've heard the old saying, people don't, do, don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And that's, that's, so, that's so true. And, but also, it was a love out of conviction. He knew that what he was doing mattered. He had a mission that mattered. He had convictions. Now, you and I have talked about this before, and conviction is something that you die for. It's something you do, you never compromise. Now, the problem in churches today is that we have brought preferences to the forefront, our own privileges that we claim, that we grasp to, and we say, oh, these are my convictions. You've got to do this, and you've got to have this kind of Bible, and you've got to have this kind of music. You've got to dress in a certain way, or you're not godly, and you've got to do this, or you're not godly. You've got to do this. My church has to do this and this. And it's all about the preferences. If, you, if Jesus Christ, I'll ask you this Again, because you ought to know the answer to this, some of you. If Jesus Christ is your Lord, where do you get the convictions that you're willing to die for? Where do you find them? Anybody know? The Bible. Thank you. The Bible. If you're getting them from somewhere else, then something else is on the throne of your life. So you get them from the Bible. So when you start showing chapter and verse and say, this, this is the word of God, we can't compromise that, then you're on to something. Everything else is a preference. It may be a big, big, huge preference for you. I understand that, but nevertheless it is. What were some of Jesus' convictions? Well, Jesus, first of all, thought, felt like the, the Bible was the word of God. He said, this whole world's going to pass away, but my word, not one jot, not one tittle, that is, these little bitty marks in the Hebrew language. He said, not one jot and one tittle will ever leave the word of God. He says, the word of God will abide forever. So the Bible's important. What else? Not only was the Bible important, a conviction, but also 
the will of his father came first. He said, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Lord, this is what I want. Let this cup of wrath pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Said it three times. And he did the will of God, the Father, by going to the cross and dying for our sins. It was his conviction to serve others. He said, Jesus said, hey, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. Mark 20. Then, or Mark 10. And he said also that he came to die on the cross for our sins. Why? Because he said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way to heaven, the path to heaven. No one comes to the Father but by me. He knew that if he didn't go to the cross, all of us would be lost in our sin. All of us would be unforgivable. All of us would be bound for hell and not for heaven. None of us could have a relationship with God. It was a mission that mattered in his life. He knew he was making a difference. Convictional love says, I love you and I can make a difference in your life by placing you before my own interests. I often talk to committees. Every time we have a committee meeting or start a new committee, um, let's say a search committee or whatever, I, I, I share with them, look, you have to leave your agenda at the door. Maybe, you know, your daughter, your son prefers this type of person. Or maybe you're, uh, you, you're on the stewardship committee and you, you really are going to push for this one thing on the, stu- on the budget because that's your thing. You have to leave that at the door. Your own agenda. Because you're speaking here, these six, seven, eight people, whatever, speaking for the entire church. So much is on the line. And I've seen more and more people, oh, you know, I haven't thought about it that way. I've got to rethink the whole thing. Why? Putting others' interest ahead of our own. So we need that. We, we, if we're going to lead like Jesus, we, we put our own interests aside for the interests of others, but also it takes a mind that is humble in order to do that. We go back to verse 6, or verse, all the way back to verse 3, actually. He says, a humility of mind. And then in verse 6, he exists in the form of God, did not regard it as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Another word here for this in some of your Bibles is humble. Then it, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in likes of men. In fact, let's just trace this just a moment. Let's just pause for just a moment and trace this. And descending steps to greatness. Descending steps to how to really become great and blessed in the eyes of God. You want to know that, right? You don't know how to be blessed? Okay, three of you. You, know, you three listen very carefully. The rest of y'all wake up. Some of you think I'm going to volunteer. Yeah, all those three come up here in the front. No, I'm just kidding. I'd never do that to you. you know, it's okay. You're safe. All right, you're safe. Now, notice what it says here. It says, first of all, he emptied himself of his privileges. Then taking on the form of a bondservant, humbling himself to become a slave and being made in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance as a man, he took on our likeness. He took on a body. He died on the cross. Then, notice in verse 9, for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name which is above every name. And so first he said he emptied himself 
And then he took on the form of a slave. He took on the body of a man. Then he died on a cross and God exalted him because of his obedience to the Father. I want you to notice in this that humility is not putting yourself down. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to tell you this morning that you got to start hating yourself. Please don't do that. Humility is not um, putting yourself down. It's not comparing yourself to somebody else. Oh, I'm just unworthy. I'm, you know, besides, why do we do that? Oh, I'm just ugly and, you know, my hair is not right and, you know, this outfit's bad. What do you want people to do? Oh, no, no, you're very pretty. You know, oh, I love that outfit. You know, you're, you're, you're not, uh, you know, guy, you know, you look at a guy and say, no, you're not nearly as out of shape as what you think. And why do we want that? Because we want that, that compliment. I'm, I'm waiting for the guy, good friend, to say, you know, yeah, you know, look, I'm, I'm just a loser. I'm a loser. What do you have to say about that? And you say, well, you pretty much summed it up. You know, I'm waiting for that. But <laughs> nobody, nobody, why, why do we do that? We want a compliment. Okay, we want something back. But here we find humility is just simply saying, I need. I need something that is outside myself that I'm incapable of providing. The example, salvation. You come to Christ. The only way to come to Christ is in humility. It's not one of those things where, you know, God, I, I, I'm pretty good. I'm a pretty good guy. I'm a lot better than a lot of the people I look down on, you know, and outside the church. And I mean, my goodness, I came from a good family. That's got to be a, be a brownie point for me. And, uh, or I came up from a bad family, and I, I'm really a lot better than they are. That's got to be a brownie point. But God, I'm not quite there, and so I need Jesus on the cross. That's not salvation. Salvation says, God, I am a sinner. There's nothing I can do to save myself. I'm no different from the prisoner over in, in a, a federal prison somewhere. I am in need of a Savior. I can't save myself. I humble myself before the cross, knowing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for me, and I surrender my life to you. I repent of my sins. That's what salvation is all about. Now, Colossians says, as you have received Christ Jesus, humility, so walk in him. One of my, one of my life's verses. And listen, the higher you go up in leadership, as we ordain these deacons today, the higher you go up on Satan's hit list. And the only way, one of the ways at least, a big way to combat that is humility because pride goes before a fall. Pride is what kills Satan. He, it was the, the original, really the original, original sin of Satan was his pride. I want to be the God of my own life. And today, that kind of thing is, is applauded, isn't it? Man, we're, we're so backward in society today. It used to be, you interviewed an athlete, and he says, oh, you know, we're, we're just, I'm, just, I'm just part of the team. It's not me, you know, it's my offensive line, or it's my quarterback throwing the ball. Now you've got these receivers, wide receivers. Some of you are sports fans. Some of you got wide receivers, man, they're signing footballs and throwing them up. Every time they score a touchdown, they throw down the ball, and they got this little special dance that they do. Why do they do that? Because they get the endorsements. The guy that simply walks into the end zone, scores more touchdowns maybe than the other guy, tosses the ball aside, gives a high five to his teammates, goes back, just real humble about it. He doesn't get the endorsements. It's not applauded. But the guy that has this big dance and slams the football down and jumps into the crowd, man, he signed up. He, he's famous because we applaud pride in this world. I mean, how, 
I don't know. How, how would it be as, you know, I preach a sermon and we have an invitation, a lot of people get saved, and I slam my Bible down and give a big dance around here. I mean, it wouldn't be the same thing, would it? Wouldn't be the same. Some of y'all are imagining that and you just don't, you don't want to go there. You know, you just have to pluck out your mind's eye, you know, that kind of thing. But, um, you know, no, because we expect the pastor to be humble. Why? Because it's a godly thing, a humility of heart. What happens when we don't have that, folks? A humility of mind. We want to use God. Can I get personal here? So personal that everybody here has experienced this. We want to use God in order to fulfill our own agenda. We do. We don't have that humility of mind. I love the little prose that was written by a man who was going through this, Robert Raines. And he says, I'm like James and John. That's the title of it. Now, if you remember James and John, two sons of Zebedee, two of the disciples in the New Testament, they were arguing one day. You, you think you're the only people that are jealous and want and have ambition. James and John were ambitious disciples. And they said, Jesus, we were just kind of discussing who was going to be worthy to be sitting at your right hand up in heaven. And Jesus kind of rebuked them. And he said, you know, that's, that's up to my father. You just need to be doing your work. And so Robert Raines, seeing this, said this. I am like James and John. Lord, I size up other people in terms of what they can do for me, how they can further my program, feed my ego, satisfy my needs, give me strategic advantage. I will exploit people, ostensibly for your sake, but really for my own sake. Lord, I turn to you to get the inside track, obtain special favors, those favors, your direction for my schemes, your power for my projects, your sanction for my ambitions, your blank checks for whatever I want. I am like James and John. Then he goes on to say, change me, Lord. Make me a man who asks of you and of others, what can I do for you? That's the kind of men we're, I believe that we are ordaining here today. Men of God who ask the question, what can I do for you? Otherwise, it's going to be a sense of duty, isn't it? And then pretty soon the duty is not going to be enough, and so you're not going to want to serve anymore, and when you don't want to serve anymore, you're sitting back, and you, want to be, you kind of want to be served. You know, what, what are you doing for me now? Humility of mind. And then finally, if we're going to lead like Jesus, we need hands that are busy. Notice in verse 8, one more time, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. His hands were nailed to the cross, and that was the greatest symbol and sign for us that he served us. Again, Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The word deacon means to serve. It means, it means one who kicks up the dust. It means really kind of a bond slave, a servant. And it, it has the idea of not being pushed out to serve, not getting that phone call, oh, I got to go again. You got to be kidding. No, it's someone who kicks up the dust, someone who is anxious to serve. And so what does it take? 
because you live a busy life, folks. You're busier than you need to be. Can I say that to free you up? Say this with me. I'm busier than I need to be. Say it with me again. I'm than what I need to be. Because we, we just take our lead from so many people besides Jesus. You know, some people are, you know, they go down the lake. Why? Well, they, they saw on Facebook. Somebody else was down the lake fishing. They think, you know, I'm really not doing my duty as a parent. I haven't been to the lake. Somebody else on the beach. I haven't been to the beach. Somebody else is at Disney World. Well, I've got to go to Disney World now. I've spent all that money in, you know, Disney World, extra time or whatever. Because everybody else is doing it. I've got to get my, my children involved in that program because everybody else. I'm just not a good parent. Listen, you don't, you don't look. You don't compare yourself to other parents. You compare yourself to what Jesus wants you to do. So we're busier. We're more anxious than what we need to be. So it takes priority. Who is first in your life? Who's sitting on that throne of your life? What do you want to accomplish in your life? Listen, as long as you are investing most of your time in the finite things of life, you'll never invest them on the infinite things in life. And, and yeah, your children, no, your children are not finite. They're infinite beings, one way or the other. So I'm not excluding them. 1 Corinthians 4.2, moreover, it is required in stewards, that's us, that a man be found faithful. So it takes that. It takes sacrifice putting aside your own agenda. You're spending your time and your energy in something that's worthwhile. Why? Because it comes back to that love and conviction, that passion. What is your passion of life? As we said, this one thing, this one thing I do, this one thing I do, what is the passion that's built around love and conviction that you want to see done in your life? Don't be like the guy in John Piper's book, Don't Waste Your Life, when John Piper went into that church to see his father, who was a pastor, counseling with that gentleman that afternoon in that saint, little sanctuary all by himself, and all he could hear was a shout as he opened up the door, and it kind of scared him. And he opened up the door, and this guy was yelling, I've wasted it! I've, I've wasted it! I've wasted my life! Somebody 50 years old or better, looking back on his life and saw lost opportunity. Because of lack of priorities. Otherwise, what are we going to do? We're not going to be where we need to be. Listen, <clears throat> look in verse 9. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. He was exalted. Listen to what the Bible says about deacons. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men also must be first tested. Then let them serve as deacons as they are beyond reproach. Listen to that. Beyond reproach doesn't mean perfection. It just means you've got a good testimony. You're living to a higher standard. It's not just the pastor has a high standard and then the staff and the deacons have a much, much lower standard. Oh, they're, they're just like us. You know. No. A high, the higher you go up, the fewer options you have. A higher standard living above reproach. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith in Jesus Christ. They're exalted. 
You want to know how to be exalted as a deacon? You serve well, faithful to the Lord. Well, you know, it's easy. You say, well, pastor, it's easy for you to you get up and serve. I know you have to do a lot of research and a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff. And, but, you know, you get rewarded. You get up and, and able to preach, and people write you notes. And keep those notes coming, by the way, folks. I like those. But, no, they're very encouraging. Or, or Tim Johnson gets up here and leads music and some of the others. Man, they're, they're in the forefront. Your teacher in your small group pats on the back. But what about those who are serving behind the scenes? What about the deacons who serve a lot behind the scenes? You know, what about them? A little tougher. Realizing this, and I close with this, um, Ruth Harms Calkin wrote a poem called I Wonder. Here's what it says. You know, Lord, how I serve you with great emotional fervor in the limelight. You know how eagerly I speak for you at a women's club. You know how I effervesce when I promote a fellowship group. You know my genuine enthusiasm at a Bible study. But how would I react, I wonder, if you pointed me to a basin of water and asked me to wash, wash the callous feet of a bent and wrinkled old woman day after day, month after month, in a room where nobody saw and nobody knew. That's real service. That's serving others, serving the Lord by serving other people. And so what about us today? We're going to ordain these men in just a few moments. We're going to pray for them. And so as we do, I want to challenge in three ways. Number one, pray for your deacons. Number two, encourage them, support them. Listen, they're going to be attacked enough by Satan. They don't need to be attacked by you too. Amen? And you pray for them, that God would protect them, support them. Instead of being, oh, yeah, he's going to do all the work. That's not it. No, he's a catalyst for ministry in the Sunday school. How many times have I been up just like to the hospital just like not, not too long ago where someone, a young person had passed away, a younger person, a young adult, and I walk into the, the hospital room thinking I was probably going to be the first one there. The deacon was already there. The teacher was already there. And 20 people in the class were already there in the middle of the day with food out there on the table for all the family. A catalyst supporting the leadership by being a follower of the God-appointed leader that is in your class. And then finally, I would challenge you to say, God, what can I do to be a leader myself like Jesus? You know, I'm not a leader. No, no, chances are, unless you're Bart Simpson, you're leading something. You're leading something. Let's take our model from Jesus. Passionate heart for the right things. God and others. Humble. A humble mind. And busy hands say, God, what would you have me to do in this life. Right now, in fact, what is it? Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.